This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Dumoulin. And I'm Yannick Magnan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Learning AppKit as an iOS developer. Ooh, I'm pretty excited about this topic. I'm not, I don't want to jinx us too much, but I think we're on a roll on good topics in the past few episodes. I just think saying, so too. Just saying, uh, I guess uh, it shows how, am I, how I am excited about uh, tonight's topic. So, but... Before we start into the topic, we do have some follow-up, and the first item is quite fun for us. Yeah, we're celebrating seven years of Limitless Possibility this week. Woohoo! Thank you for sticking with us uh, for as long as you have. Uh, we don't have very many listeners, but uh, the ones we do have tend to be fairly devoted, so thank you very much for listening. And I would like to note that, uh, I guess it's a pat on both of our shoulders, Yannick, that today's episode is episode uh, 170. And if you divide it by, we did an episode every two weeks, so if you divide it by 26, uh, it gives us more or less 6.5 years. So it seems that we're pretty being consistent throughout those years. Uh, those years, even if more recently we had uh, some uh, longer breaks, so I was pretty happy to see that stat too uh, in preparation for this show. So I guess two, seven more years? Question mark. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Good. So let's move into the main follow-up. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to start off with some follow-up for episode 169, which was the last episode on Nicolivier's phot- photography journey. Uh, I oh want my. to a- add some context for the RX100 discussion we were having. Uh, so the RX100 is a Sony point-and-shoot camera that we've talked about on the last couple episodes. And one thing I forgot to mention on the last episode is that very important context, which is that the first generation RX100 launched around the time that the iPhone 4 came out. And mm. that really puts a lot into context, because if you imagine having basically the equivalent of the iPhone 13 camera in a tiny pocketable body in 2010, that is super impressive at the time. And really, all this illustrates is iPhone cameras caught up to premium point and shoot cameras way faster than premium point and shoots could get better. Uh, so I think like that market segment is really under threat by the iPhone more so than uh, mirrorless or SLRs. Speaking of mirrorless and SLRs, there's also follow-up from my dad uh, for this episode. So uh, on the episode, I uh, mentioned an anecdote from my dad, which was that uh, I remembered something where he had told me, uh, you don't need more than three megapixels to uh, print things out. And I got that a little bit wrong. Uh, So... I, I had mentioned uh, that he had brought the Coolpix 995 to New York. Uh, that was the wrong camera. Uh, by that time, he had already switched to a Nikon D2H, which has a 4 megapixel APS-C Ooh. sensor, which is uh, a little bit better. Um, the, well, the, the sensor size is the main thing there. The megapixels are an incremental uh, improvement. And the photos that he took with that camera were printed at 24 by 36, which is movie poster huh. size. Not small. Not small indeed. Right. And it's basically fine as long as your photo was good out of the camera, and meaning no crop needed. Otherwise, of course, your pixels are going to get bigger, and that's no good. Um, but the the overall point stays the same. Uh, megapixels don't mean as much as you think they do for print. Uh, so the point still stands, despite my inaccuracy. Actually, megapixels uh, matter 
more for displays, weirdly enough, uh, because of square pixels and scaling and the same stuff we deal with in retro games all the time. Uh, so your old digital photos may age more poorly on your displays than they do on paper, which is really strange. Hmm. He also agrees with me that even the best phone cameras don't really come close to recent mirrorless or SLR cameras. And mainly the reason for that is that physics are always going to be a trade-off for all-in-one devices like phones compared to purpose-built devices like cameras, uh, which makes perfect sense to me. Uh, now, you also have some follow-up from my dad, interestingly enough. Yes, I, I guess we expected a lot of follow-up, a lot of follow-up from him. Uh, and I guess you forgot slash omitted that your dad had a Fujifilm X100S, which was the previous generation. I didn't remember the exact model, and I checked the the EXIF data, I think, while I was editing the the show, and that's when I noticed what he had. Mm. So following the episode, he, uh, follow, following him listening to the episode, he sent me a note uh, via chat saying, hey, by the way, uh, if you want to borrow this camera... Uh, Feel free to do so. Again, it's been a while since I've been in Trois-Rivières, but thank you, Jean-Pierre. I'll take note of that. And next time I'm in town, we will see each other, uh, if you're in town too, uh, and I'll be grabbing and enjoying this camera for a couple of days. Even if he's not in town, uh, my mom knows where the camera case is, and she has been instructed <laughs> that she can hand it over to you. <laughs> no problem. I've been told that I need to ask for the orange case, like oh. it's super important or something. Uh, but you're correct, too. But yeah, so maybe I guess I'll have possible f- uh, future follow-up. I just need to drive to Travia. And again, uh, these days it's pretty busy for me. So driving to Travia might happen in a week to three weeks. It's still unclear. Depends. But I know I have something in uh, early November uh, family gathering. So I might be able to go uh, grab it at that moment. So thank you for the offer and stay tuned. I'm sure I'll have some follow-up and maybe some regrets too. We'll see about that in the future. Is that it for your photo follow-up? No, I do have one point, and it is a video you sent me that I think is worth sharing with our listeners regarding photo management. And again, uh, in last episode, we didn't, we talked about it, but uh, that was not the main goal to go uh, in big details. But uh, I would recommend to our listeners to go watch this video from Johnny Harris titled How to Remember Your Life, which is, without spoiling too much, one of like his main mantra or main goal into uh, photo management. And it, it is including the word delete. So I won't say more. Uh, I strongly suggest you go watch it. Uh, as you said to me, uh, it's maybe not a, a method I would personally recommend or that you also would not. Uh, but I think the content was pretty interesting to put things in perspective now that it's easy to get uh, Apple photo library or a Google photo library quite polluted with a shit ton of pictures. So... I'll put a link in the show notes and I recommend for listeners to watch it if you want to get inspiration into improving your photo management skills. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about that on a future episode as well. And I think we've concluded the follow-up follow for uh, episode 169. I think you have one small item before we talk about AppKit. So it's fitting that for the seventh anniversary episode, I have mobile payments follow-up for the first <laughs> well, time in quite a while. Of course. Uh, so this is follow-up for episode 157, which was our revisiting of Japanese mobile payments. Uh, on that episode, we talked about PayPay, which is like the big QR code uh, oh, yeah. service. 
Um, and Nikkei this week reported that 22% of small and medium-sized businesses using pay, pay for cashless payments are thinking of bailing on it now because they are going to char- charge merchant service fees for the first time in three years. <laughs> um, so that just made me laugh. Uh, so uh, I'll put a link to the uh, report uh, in the show notes. Uh, but that just is so, so funny that like they didn't think that that would be a problem. Uh, I don't know. It, it's weird. Uh, I hope Suica comes out the winner from that, um, but we'll see, I guess. Um, and also, it's the five-year anniversary of Apple Pay in Japan, so Joel from At a Distance made a really cool retrospective uh, going through the history of changes to Apple Pay in Japan and uh, giving uh, user anecdotes and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm not going to go into detail this episode, but uh, definitely go read it if you're interested in this stuff because it's super interesting uh, and it's really well made. I hope there's a big section about the time where, was it the iPhone 10 or 10s that more or less broke Apple payments uh, for like Suica in It Japan? was the iPhone 10 and it's how his blog basically got put on the map because it's the one blog that was actually reporting on this in English. Uh, so Ooh. it's pretty significant. And yeah, I think it's... He's done a great job covering this stuff over the years, and uh, it's a really good read. So go check that out if you're interested. And that is it for my follow-up. Recently, I've been working hard on the Mac version of Caesura, which is the iTunes re-implementation project that I've been talking about quite a bit recently on the show. And like I mentioned on the last episode, uh, I was supposed to release the first version of Caesura for the Mac, and I did in the last week. Uh, I also even managed to sneak in a second bug fix release today before recording. Uh, So you can go check that out in the show notes. Um, But this has more or less been the first time I've touched AppKit in a serious manner since prom night in 2008. And at the time, I wasn't even using Objective-C directly. I was using PyObj-C, which was a Python bridge to talk to the Objective-C AppKit APIs. It was really weird, but it worked. And that was sort of how I first messed around with AppKit on the Mac. So that was like 2008. And then fast forward to 2013, I was working on a Mac app which could take edits from the iOS version of iPhoto and recreate them in Aperture in a non-destructive way. Oh, yeah, I remember this project. Yeah, and I got quite a bit into it, but much of the work was in the back end, which actually recreated those edits. And I hadn't really made a UI at all or touched AppKit at all. And by the time it became clear that iOS iPhoto's days were numbered, uh, I didn't touch AppKit at all. So I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of my AppKit knowledge is long gone and possibly even outdated. And for all intents and purposes, I was kind of relearning this from zero aside from my six years of experience on iOS. So I thought it would be it would make for an interesting episode to discuss how AppKit is as someone approaching it primarily from an iOS developer uh, point of view and maybe reevaluate certain opinions I've held about AppKit in the past. Can I make a bad joke about you going back to the Mac to look? Let's start off with uh, general conventions. One of the things that really impressed me at the time of the original iPhone jailbreak in summer of 2007 was how quickly experienced Mac developers actually got around to writing applications for the iPhone when they had absolutely no documentation whatsoever. 
That's not too different from developing with SwiftUI. No, <laughs> just fucking around. Ooh, wow, you start strong with the outtakes, outtakes tonight. Um, but now that I've played some more with AppKit, I certainly understand how they warmed up to UIKit pretty quickly. Um, UIKit, especially early on, is very much like AppKit light. It respects a lot of the same conventions and patterns. It was still a complete reimagining of a UI framework for a completely different device. So a lot of cruft was eliminated when it wasn't relevant for the devices that were targeted at the time, namely the original iPhone and probably iPad prototypes <laughs> in the back end. Um, but for the most part, like if you were familiar with uh, certain types of protocols like data sources and delegates and uh, target action relationships, you were very quickly going to find yourself at home uh, within UIKit if you were an AppKit developer. Basically, like if I had to compare AppKit and UIKit at a high level, there are still some fairly big deviations that may break your muscle memory, but ultimately a lot of the design philosophy is the same behind the APIs, whether you're talking about AppKit or UIKit. So it's really more of a family resemblance than anything. One of these key differentiators is table views. And we're going to spend a considerable <laughs> amount of time on this episode talking about table views. Uh, the main reason for this is UI table view is the most used UI control on iOS. NS table view is used in a lot of productivity apps on the Mac. And in my case, Azure's UI is basically 80% table views or outline views, which are very similar. So it plays a big part in my personal experience with AppKit. And what's interesting is only the Mac has what I would consider to be a proper table view with actual rows and columns. It's one of the highest info density UI controls ever. Uh, it has resizable columns. It has table headers that allow you to show and hide columns in a user customizable way. You can reorder the columns. Uh, there's built-in sorting support at the table column header level. Uh, it's really fully featured and kind of none of that exists on iOS. I think what, that is one of the biggest lie, quote unquote, that UIKit did by calling it UI table view. Yeah, because like what iOS calls table views are really single column table views, kind of. Um, it's called a table view, but you can't represent tabular data in this view, which makes it not really a table. It's more of a list, which is what they're called in SwiftUI. Ultimately, both of these table views and quotes are used in completely different ways by app developers. For example, uh, the settings app and most settings views on iOS are implemented entirely in table views. No one would ever think of using an NS table view to implement a settings app on the Mac. That's just not how you design UIs because NS table view does not look like a list of settings at all, but it does on iOS, especially when you use the grouped uh, setting uh on the table view. On top of that, they're implemented in completely different ways. Um, each row in an iOS table is itself a view. Each table cell in a Mac table view is a cell, which is not a view, <laughs> until Lion, when they added view-based table views to the Mac. So if you go back in time before Lion, there was this boomer complaint, and I am perfectly guilty of having this boomer complaint, which this is... boomer complaint, oh my goodness. <laughs> which is... Nothing on the Mac did what UI table view does adequately. If you were coming from iOS prior to 2010 and you were trying to make Mac apps for the first time, the most commonly used UI control on the iPhone had no equivalent on the Mac. If you were trying to write like a Twitter client, which was trendy at the time, 
and you're coming from a world where each tweet is a chunky table view cell on iOS. You can't do that with an stable view on the Mac because an stable view on the Mac is cell-based, and that means it has very limited customization options, and it was entirely built around presenting and editing tabular data in a rows and columns format, which is not what you were trying to make your Twitter client look like, unless you're tween on Windows, which is a very weird uh, Twitter client that I used for a while. So that means you would have to roll your own equivalent to UI table view, and if you're coming from iOS uh, and you're developing iOS uh, Mac apps for the first time, this is a UI framework you have zero familiarity in. So the likelihood that someone new to GoGo is going to write a UI table view equivalent that has adequate scrolling performance on their first try is basically zero. If you were approaching the Mac and NS table view with an iOS point of view and iOS-like needs at that time, you naturally grew to hate the cell-based NS table view API because it's not what you wanted. Revisiting this opinion today, I have a very different take. Uh, namely that cell-based table views did nothing wrong. Uh, the actual problem is that the Mac had nothing to actually address your particular use case. The cell-based table views were great for a ton of other use cases, um, but it's not reasonable to throw them under the bus just because iOS devs' needs aren't being met by it. So we need to give iOS devs something that fills their need that can coexist with cell-based table views. So that's what they did in Lion, but they did it in a somewhat awkward way. Both of them are implemented in the same NS table view class. It's a mode switch on the class. That means that most APIs exist in two flavors. You have one that deals with cells and one that deals with views. And as a developer, you constantly have to check that you're calling the right ones or implementing the right ones because you can get confused and implement the wrong one and it's just never going to get called because you're in the wrong mode. I really wish that they had done this in a separate class or subclass or used sub-objects or something to keep the structure cleaner or something, but it just wasn't done that way. It was just like dumped onto NS table view and it's just kind of messy. Now, one of the advantages about this uh, lion view based table view thing is it's unlike iOS because you can still have multi-column support. It's just that every uh, cell of the table gets its own view. Uh, instead of getting its own NS cell. One thing to note about uh, view-based versus cell-based uh, table views is that both modes have completely different rendering paths and performance characteristics. Characteristics. Uh, I imagine that the difference between the two is much less pronounced on today's hardware than it was 11 years ago when they originally launched this stuff, but at the time it was a pretty sizable performance difference uh, with views rendering and scrolling much faster than cells at the time, I believe. That was the Boomer complaint. Now let's move to my new complaint in 2021, the Zoomer complaint, uh, which is nothing on iOS does what cell-based NS table views do adequately. There is not a control on iOS that can handle displaying tabular data out of the box. The closest thing you have are collection views. And even if you use a collection view, uh, there's still a lot of weaknesses. First of all, you have to do a lot more work than with an NS table view. A lot. Yes. A lot more work. Uh, collection views provide no standardized user interface elements for sorting by a given column. Uh, there's nothing even vaguely resembling the functionality of resizable, reorderable, or even customizable column display. You have to roll that yourself. 
So that leads to one of two behaviors on the on the part of iOS developers. Either each app developer implements their own custom way of doing some or all of these things, and there's no consistency across applications. Or uh, the more common one is developers simply abstain from offering this kind of functionality on iOS. And that means that naturally, just because table views are richer on the Mac, uh, it's easier to implement them on the Mac, and therefore Mac software tends to have more features than iOS fe- uh, iOS does. And this is just talking about one half of the cell-based NSTableView feature set, because we're only talking about reading data here. But NSTableView on the Mac also provides inline editing of tabular data as well. Uh, if you've ever clicked on a file name in a finder list view to rename a file, or you edited uh, your MP3 tags straight from the table view in iTunes, you've used inline cell editing before. It's that exact functionality. And this functionality is so rich that you could implement a bare-bones spreadsheet app by implementing a couple delegate methods on the Mac with NS table view. You can't really do that on iOS with any control iOS style table views are really well suited to phones because they were primarily designed as a quick way to list data and drill down in a navigation stack. And they're great at that. It's basically the evolution of the iPod UI, if you think about it for two seconds. Mac style table views are really well suited to desktops and iPads because they provide a wealth of features that allow for desktop class productivity software to be fully featured with relatively little effort. My opinion on cell-based table views have completely turned around. I actually wish that there was something like them in iOS, and it could actually really elevate the standard of what people expect out of iPad productivity software. I have one worry, though, and that is that the documentation recommends against using cell-based NS table views. Uh, So here is a quote from the documentation. In iOS 10.6 and earlier, each table view cell was required to be a subclass of NS cell. This approach caused limitations when designing complex custom cells, often requiring you to write your own NSL subclasses. Providing animations such as progress views was also extremely difficult. NSL based tables continue to be supported in iOS 10.7 and later, but they're typically used only to support legacy code. In general, you should use NSView based tables. That raises a bunch of red flags for me. Um, there are, like I described, legitimate strengths and weaknesses to both of these approaches. Uh, view-based NS table views are much more flexible than salt-based ones in terms of how things can be laid out. A lot of the limitations that are inherent in the customization for NS cell exist as a byproduct of needing to provide a consistent UI for inline editing. If you get rid of editing, a lot of these problems go away. You can use uh, view-based NS table views to display tabular data, but it has no built-in support for editing. So that's kind of the trade-off there. Uh, and if you want to build editing into view-based NS table views, you have to roll your own. And that means devs are going to implement things in inconsistent ways, which leads us to the same issues we have on iOS. And most of the uses of view-based NS table views are not for tabular data. They're for iOS-style lists. So... For me, there's room for both APIs, and my suggestion in this case would be to split NSTableView on the Mac into two distinct classes, uh, one based on the cell-based mode, which primarily revolves around the display and inline editing of tabular data, and another one based on the view-based mode, which primarily excels at displaying lists of custom views, uh, like on iOS. And ideally, you should make efforts to bring proper support for tabular data display on iOS, uh, iPadOS as well. So... That's what I had to say about table views. Do you have any questions on this 
before we move on to the next thing. Not questions, but uh, a comment. Uh, and it's something I kind of realized recently. And it's less about the APIs themselves, but about the impacts of those changes, even in some Apple apps. So for years, uh, I was one of the few people, or I shouldn't say few, but I was one of those people that were clicking the classic mode in a mail.app. Uh, and it's still working on the computer I'm recording with because it's running Catalina. But on my work laptop, uh, I moved to Pixar and it's gone. And because I, I think, it, I'm not sure if it's because there was an upgrade or anything, but moral of the story is it's gone. And I always felt that, especially for mail, when I'm lazy and I need to go through a bunch of emails, I always felt that classic mode, which was literally at the top, you have one of those... I guess in a stable view, but like the tabular data that Yang has described and to process email quickly was way easier than what we had right now, which is more or less the iOSification of the Mac app, which without knowing how it is implemented, it does look like it is a UI table view on the Mac. Uh, it probably is because again, like if you remember, uh, mail is one of the apps that has an actual direct next step lineage uh right. and for people who don't know uh, appkit is a direct descendant of the next step uh, ui framework which was also appkit uh from the 1980s uh and basically all they did was reskin it for mac os 10 uh i mean there have been a lot of changes to appkit since the 1980s so it, mail itself must have changed quite a bit as well but it looks like a traditional NS table view. And back in the day, it wasn't a, a traditional NS table view. And I think this is, would be a whole other topic, but Big Sur and modern Apple design in general is very allergic to information density, uh, which is mm -hmm. probably why they got rid of the classic mode. Um, but NS table view is very much, especially in cell based mode, one of the most information dense controls you can have and it really it feels like you're using a computer when you use ns table view uh in cell based mode uh so maybe that's why they're backing away from it i don't know it, and it is a good point and that's why i miss it so much from mail because it was easy to go through let's say you have like 20 emails you need to go through because you were lazy this week and you kind of need just quickly load them skim through them and do that was quite easy. Right now, it's kind of a load and it's kind of janky because especially when you had the mode where you had the table at the top and then the content at the bottom made it quite information dense. And that was a mode I liked. So I agree with you. Uh, kind of wish. And we kind of nearly got that. I think it's the... is Wasn't it this year that they supported the kind of outline or the table mode in Swift UI, but for Mac only? That's control yep. on... And everybody was like, oh my god, it's coming on the... Oh no, it's Mac only. Crap. Yep. So maybe next year, but I hope that at some point it's going to be like kind of backported to iOS in such a way that possibly, like, again, it might uh, it might come with the upside or downside, depending on, on which side of the coin you are, uh, of it's on SwiftUI. So if you use SwiftUI, who cares how it's implemented in the back, but you can have it possibly in the future ios and mac that would be really neat one thing i did not have time to research uh, for this episode is if swift ui actually has inline editing with the grid or if it's just viewing content uh, mm. because it could be that they're just using view-based ns table views uh with like very basic cells and they're that's how they're doing it 
whereas if they were using uh, cell-based, you would get the editing functionality for free. But I that seems like too generous for what Swift UI would give us these <laughs> days. So I don't think. Uh, but but I don't want to judge it too early. I'll have to do more right. research to find out if yeah, that's yeah. true. All right, next point: ambiguous app architecture. We were talking about mm. this last time we recorded uh, after the show. Um, so this is an issue that is going to impact not just Mac developers, but also probably people who want to write iPad apps who learned iOS development at a very particular period. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I learned iOS development and, to be honest, model view controller back in the day when apps were still black boxes. Uh, there were very little other apps could do to interact directly with your application while it was running. You basically had two ways back in my day. You had file opening and you had URL schemes. Uh, otherwise, apps couldn't really do anything to talk to your app. Extensions had just started coming out around the time I stopped developing for iOS. Uh, one of my last projects, I was trying to build a share extension. So like that gives you a feeling and they had just come out. Uh, multi-window iPad apps came out many years after that. And that sort of completely changed what you need to think about in terms of your app architecture so that you can handle those scenarios. Uh, because apps were still black boxes back in the day, you could take shortcuts with your app's architecture. And I think a lot of us did. And now we regret it. Uh, you didn't need to think about multiple windows being opened at once and sharing state between those windows. You didn't need to think about your app doing stuff while no windows are open because that's not a state that exists on iOS. Uh, you didn't need to think about user selecting actions from the menu bar while no windows are open and expecting that to do something. Um, so as a developer, you could kind of opt out of having to think about global state in your iOS app. Uh, there was only ever really one execution context you needed to worry about at once. And you could probably predictably map out all of the transitions from one view controller to another and plan how you were going to pass data amongst those view controllers and kind of cheat your app architecture this way. Uh, like you would have, at the end of the day, you would have a perfectly functional application, but the second that those base assumptions go away, you're kind of fucked. And that's sort of the situation I find myself in. I also learned MVC in another environment. Unfortunately, that one was not much better. It was the web. Uh, and Interestingly, on the web, when you're working with a bunch of MVC frameworks, you generally don't want global state in these contexts except for caches. Everything else is spun up on a per-request basis. So here, too, you only really have one execution context at a time to worry about uh, per request, but generally you want to isolate those. Uh, And in general, the execution context in this case would be the current instance of the controller for the page you're accessing. Uh, So like uh, at least on .NET MVC where we were working before, like the data layer would be a property of the controller that was spawned for the thing. And it would be initialized when the controller was created. And then you basically had access to everything from there. So yeah, I didn't really have to learn proper architecture there either because i didn't really have any global state to worry about and i was trying to keep things separate so here are some real life examples of things i need to think about and design around in cesura that i have no real answer to uh with my current knowledge so i guess the most detailed one i have here is i have a menu item that says delete selected track from library 
Okay, that's in my interface builder file. Where does the action for that menu item belong? Is it the app delegate? Because it's, I think it's the app delegate. Okay, but if it, I put it in the app delegate, how does that action access the selected track in the table view? My mm-hmm. app delegate has no reference to the window or the view controller that the selection takes place in. Is this an adequate location to use first responder? How do I safely use the first responder? I don't know. The only real experience I have with first responder is through iOS, where I only ever use it to focus text fields. So I'm sort of lost here as to what I have to do to actually get that to work. We'll talk about what I did do, which is not good, by the way, but it works, uh, but it's not good. Uh, So that's one thing. How should my UI subscribe to state changes in my audio player? How should my audio player subscribe to state changes in the currently playing playlist? Because you can delete songs from playlists while the playlist is playing, and I want it to keep playing and go to the next song correctly, even if you delete the next song, right? So my Band-Aid fix, and you're going to shame me for this, and I'm ready for it, is use Notification Center as glue for everything. I already shamed you about this. I know, I know. But I, I knew I was going to get shamed for it, and I I was expecting it. Uh, so right now, if I go look at my delete selected track from library menu item, that menu item does a very dumb thing, which is it sends a notification to a notification center that says delete item selected, and then my collection view controller, which actually has access to the selected row, uh, does the right thing in response to that. It works. It is not at all how you should be using Notification Center, but it fucking works. Um, right now, my audio player sends notifications whenever there are track changes and play pause status are changed so that I can flip the play pause icon on, in the UI and change the labels for uh, for the track metadata. Uh, whenever there are changes in the collection that impact uh, playback of the currently playing uh, collection, uh, whether it be the playlist or the user library, uh, I ping the audio player, not via a notification center this time, but via a method call uh, so that the uh, the current playback queue is updated to take into consideration whatever ordering change or deletion you did that impact playback. Ultimately, like I, I listed a bunch of problems and I sort of solved them with duct tape and I'm just kind of pushing it down the line and I don't really have a solution for these problems yet. I want to study more open source Mac apps to get a better sense of what other Mac apps are doing to solve these kinds of problems. I just haven't had the time to do it yet. And are there any? Yeah. Uh, so we were also talking about this last time where the, basically they all seem to be RSS readers, strangely enough. Uh, so there's there's Vienna, which is an old school, uh, like I think that app was still around like around Mac OS 10.2 or whatever. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Pretty old school. Yeah. Old school RSS reader. Um, and NetNewsWire, uh, ever since the latest relaunch of it uh, by uh, Brent Simmons, has been completely open source as well. Uh, so I, I know Brent Simmons is a very longtime uh, Mac developer, and he tends to have a decent grasp on how you should do things correctly. So I think I might be inclined to lean towards that. And I believe it's written in Swift as well, right? Oh, that's a good question. I would assume so, but I, I think he rewrote it entirely in Swift, and he wrote the Swift Diary series or whatever to like oh, document yeah. how he was learning it. That that rings a bell. Uh, whereas Vienna is mostly Objective C, as far as I can remember. <clears throat> so th- that might be a better place for me to start. 
uh, and just get a sense for how are people solving these kinds of problems. Uh, try to look for things that I'm not using that I probably should be using within my app. Uh, we will talk about Cocoa Bindings in a little bit. Uh, Ooh, I didn't know if you were going there at some point. Like I said, I I fix it with literally like duct tape and glue. Um, but for me, it was more important and more motivating to have an app that works and does the thing. Even if it does it wrong, it's more interesting to have a music player that actually works uh, and doing that by any means necessary than stalling and doing research up front. I would rather oh, yeah. have that have that working app out there and like I can listen to music in it and it works great right now for what I needed to do and fix it later. Don't don't make me sound like a meanie here. I, I just did that because it's kind of like I'm teasing you as a friend, but I totally agree with you that I think you took the right approach for the type of project you want to do. And I dare I say, like, that's also I was reading about it recently. Like some people, they that's their approach to business. Like if you wait too much to try a startup idea or just like try a product, you might lose time that is valuable to be on the market and to refine your product so again i'm just being a meanie for the sake of being a friend meanie but not the real one yeah although i'm I'm also saying that to defend myself against like randos who just fall and on this episode or whatever and true, uh, true. think about the thing the other thing is and i'm going to mention this later so i'm working on a video series about developing this app uh, where i basically go through feature by feature building up this app I think it's kind of important to have more uh, displays of like what the actual real development process is like when you're just fucking around with stuff and you're trying to make stuff work. And that sometimes you do fix things with glue because like that's just what you want to do for the moment and postpone the research for later. And that's fine. And I think more people would be open to the idea of building things that they are passionate about seeing in the world if they saw that you don't need to be perfect to do it. Uh, so I think having that transparency and sort of that honesty that, yeah, I'm implementing it with notification center. I know it's bad, but it's temporary and I'm going to work to fix it, uh, can maybe inspire people to start things in an imperfect way and then gradually improve on them over time. Right. And I think part of what is important here is, you know, it's duct tape. Yeah, like you're not you're not setting it as oh it's the newest app architecture that everybody should follow, and that you know at some point that you could continue investing in it as is, uh, but then the more complex your application will become, uh, the more it will become problematic to keep that around, and I think that's setting yourself for the right path. Saying okay, I know that if I want to add more complex functionality to this uh, music player. I might run into issues where if my app architecture slash stream of events is based on NS notification center, uh, something will blow up at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And also like just from messing around with various controls and various uh, frameworks, sometimes it's really not clear if Apple themselves know what should be a notification center and what shouldn't because things are arbitrarily either implemented as notifications or implemented as delegate calls on the same objects and you're not sure why and it's just it seems completely arbitrary sometimes so i i maybe there's some of that in apple too (laughs) i don't know um but it's not always necessarily clear why things are notifications and why things are delegate calls it's kind of interesting anyway on to the next point documentation woes it's not just a swift ui problem (laughs) oh my i was expecting that other point too 
Okay, so I have like two subpoints in documentation. Uh, the first is something that uh, actually has in common with Swift UI, and it's not a problem that is limited to AppKit, but it's just it's it's especially glaring in AppKit, and that is uh, the discoverability of underlying systems is very low. Uh, so right now, if you go look at the source code, Cezura is very much implemented like an iOS app, uh, and what I mean by that is the source list and the list of tracks are implemented by hand as an outline or table view data source. Uh, so long-time Mac developers might ask me why I'm not using Cocoa Bindings. And the easy answer is I don't make use of Cocoa Bindings because I don't know how to use Cocoa Bindings. And at least up until this episode's recording, I wanted my AppKit learning process to happen mostly organically from fucking around with the code and <laughs> little outside influence from my pre-existing knowledge of how Cocoa works. And my realization with this experience is that if you don't already know Cocoa Bindings is a thing that exists, it's very hard to discover that the system is even there. Uh, Cocoa Bindings is an ecosystem of about eight classes that are orphaned off into their little corner and do things on their own. If you don't know to go look for NS Object Controller, NS Array Controller, NS Tree Controller, and the rest of the family, you are never going to find that Cocoa Bindings even exists. Uh, I know they exist because I've spent years listening to Mac developers talk years before I was even an iOS developer. But when was the last time anyone actually talked about Cocoa Bindings in public? Cocoa Bindings have been around since 10.3 Panther. They last saw significant changes in 10.5 Leopard. Long-time oh, wow. Mac devs do not have a reason to bring up Cocoa Bindings in conversation because it's just like the air to them. It's just something they use out of habit. Apple doesn't bring up Cocoa Bindings because there's been nothing to talk about since the iPhone 3G came out. So how are new developers supposed to know that Cocoa Bindings exist? That is my main problem. I, I didn't even use Cocoa Bindings. I just, I'm frustrated by the fact that no one knows about Cocoa Bindings because it's buried and you have to go looking for it. Um, and like, I understand that this is very, uh, it, it, it's a strange problem, right? How do you make things discoverable? by pointing people to them. And I kind of had a counterexample, except then I sort of found proof that said that uh, Cocoa Bindings also kind of does this. Uh, key value observing, right? Uh, key value observing is arguably more discoverable than Cocoa Bindings because NS Object has this protocol called NS Key Value Observing, and you're going to stumble on a bunch of methods that you won't understand what they do, but at least you'll stumble on those things and you will find out that there is a thing called key value observing and you can go look it up. Cocoa bindings. Yeah. Okay. Technically there's a protocol that it also implements, but you are much less likely to accidentally find it when typing in your autocomplete than uh, anything related to KVO. So it's much, much harder to accidentally discover Cocoa Bindings. And sort of like the only hint you have is if you go fuck around in the object library in Interface Builder and you scroll around and you see array controllers and you don't understand what they're for, if you Google them, you'll find out that Cocoa Bindings exist. But that's kind of your main path to discover this even is a thing. Uh, and I don't think it's acceptable. It should be more upfront in your face uh, that this thing is there because apparently people love it. It's just it's not exposed in really any user-facing way unless you know it's there. And it never came to iOS? It never came to iOS either, right. Uh, which is like, you, you have no reason coming from iOS to look for it because you don't think 
you don't have the expectation from iOS that something like this exists. And and I knew about it because I worked I work still with a bunch of ex Mac developer that when we start to build app at work, they kind of like let's try to build our own on iOS to see how it works or how we should have that. And in the end, we kind of didn't like that. But uh, that's where I learned about it. One thing that again, because those documentation websites are dead, I have some vague memory that it was a bit more present in the old, old uh, Apple documentation that is now gone because multiple redesigns and multiple cleanup of the documentation. I think it was kind of like if you were trying to learn out, there was a section, I have vague memories that says like, oh, you want to learn Mac development, here's what you need to do. And I think some of the examples were using Cocoa Bindings directly, but where they are now? I don't really know. Are they still like, can you still find a random link that points to the archive documentation? Maybe, but it's going to be a long while before you find that said link. Yeah. Like you can definitely learn how to use Cocoa Bindings, but it requires effort and it requires you to know that it exists, which are, which is a high bar, I think, for something that is um, spoken of so highly by Cocoa developers. I'm going to say that. Okay, the, the other problem I have with documentation is uh, kind of a problem where there's not enough documentation, and sometimes the documentation that is there is too narrow. Um, and my story here is specifically with implementing drag and drop within Caesura. So Caesura uses d- drag and drop in two places right now. There's when you drag a track from the library to a playlist in the sidebar in order to add it to a playlist, and there's dragging a track in a playlist up or down to reorder the playlist. Um, both of these rely on the same drag and drop API, except in different operation modes. So you can have one for reordering and have one for copying things into playlists, for example. Just for people who don't know, the way that drag and drop works in table views on the Mac is uh, when you start dragging a view, it writes a representation of the data from that table row into a temporary clipboard. And this might seem weird, uh, but it's kind of clever. Uh, pasteboards have built-in support for entities that can be re- represented as multiple data types. Uh, so for example, uh, if you use copy and paste in your browser uh, and you copy a link, uh, you can paste it as at least four different data types, right? You can paste it as plain text, which is the text of the link. You can uh, paste that as RTF, which is rich text of the text, uh, which links to the page. Uh, you can have the URL of the link, which is another representation, and you can have HTML source of what the link is, right? And then uh, depending on which container you are pasting into, it will choose the correct content type that it can understand. Well, drag and drop works around the same system. The problem is uh, all of the documentation I can find on how to use drag and drop in table views was too specific. It was always talking specifically about using file promises, which are a special content type when you're dragging files between apps. Uh, So this example here was uh, in the context of building a custom photo browser in a Mac app, and you could drag photos out of this photo browser to export them to the desktop, and you could drag photos in to import them. Naturally, like this example is super useful if you're building that kind of application, but there are so many more scenarios where drag and drop can be useful where this is absolutely worthless. And uh, that was the case for me. Uh, So I basically had to go find out how clipboards work in isolation of the drag and drop system, uh, get my representations onto the clipboard, do some guesswork to figure out how to use the clipboard with non 
non-file promise types in drag and drop contexts and it worked so i it was kind of left as an exercise to the reader to see if they were actually paying attention oh by the way the whole thing about it using an s-based board is like a footnote in the documentation and they thought it wasn't important because clearly they think you're only going to be using drag and drop of files uh so like that kind of overly narrow documentation like it, it it's really useful if you're doing that specific context but there should have been a broader uh example that shows you how to use it with basic data types instead of files when you don't need to drag around files because like in my case when i'm dragging uh a track from the library to the playlist in the sidebar all I want in that scenario is the track ID of that track so I can add it to the new playlist. I don't care about dragging the whole MP3 file. Uh, it's not relevant. And in the case of reordering a playlist, if a, if a song is in the playlist multiple times, that's useless to me having the reference to the file because I can't differentiate which version you're dragging, right? Uh, I want actually like a specific ID that represents its association to the playlist and where it's where it is in the order more so than I want the actual mp3 file in that scenario. So yeah, a lot of work can be used on the documentation to stop making things too narrow, or at least if you're going to have a narrow documentation example, have a broader one that is more globally applicable if possible. Uh, and unfortunately, like reading the API re uh, references were not particularly useful in figuring out how you are actually supposed to do it. Uh, so it's really more of an exercise to the reader, like I said. Uh, any questions or comments? Uh, no, not really. Uh, those API, I had the chance to play with them on a small internal tool at work. And yeah, they're, they're not hard to understand, but they are somewhat complex to grasp uh i had to, i was struggling a bit especially because uh what we were trying to do is more or less have a list of links so it's, think about it as a link manager but uh when you copy them or you reorder them or you drag it to another app uh you might want more or less information so having this uh multiple representation of same data in the ns space board uh was one of the fun challenges i had to deal with uh somewhat recently i think it's a year or two ago i had to deal with that so uh you run into those problems reminded me of when i had to modernize this app for it to make it work uh, for making it compile with uh newer sdks yeah that pretty much does it for this episode uh if you enjoyed this kind of discussion like i mentioned earlier i'm launching a new video series this weekend called Cesura guided tour uh, it's going to start out with a multi-episode multi tour of building the first version of Cesura on the mac feature by feature and then ideally, the goal is to document splitting out things into a common framework that is going to be shared by the Mac and iOS versions, and then developing the iOS version on top of that framework. Uh, it is directly inspired by uh, Joshua Stein's System 6C development series that I recommended last year, and Andreas Kling's ongoing development of Serenity OS and as videos on YouTube. Uh, the introductory episode should be out already by the time you're listening to this, and I've got about six episodes planned out to actually catch up to the head of the Git repository as it is right now. Uh, so there's a lot of work uh, for me to be doing in the next month or two uh, to get these videos out and to also uh, get Cesura in a more uh, feature-packed state. Um, but yeah, I I'm interested in this project, and it's pretty much all I'm doing right now. Uh, so... Uh, 
I'm interested in talking about it as much as possible because it's the thing that I'm really excited about right now. Yeah, and I'm really eager to see those videos because a lot of the comments you made in this episode, especially about like the new features on iPad OS that were added to other years, again, for multiple reasons. Some of them I haven't played too much with, but just into time where we were thinking about how to adopt that in such uh, iOS apps that I'm working on, uh, I've encountered similar problems and similar like app architecture discussion with colleagues where we brainstorm art to involve uh, to improve or change so that we can change our app architecture or evolve it in such a way that we can possibly start supporting some of those features if we wanted to. Uh, and yeah, I'm eager to see where your journey uh, leaves you after trying a couple of things, realizing what's good and bad for backup. Because especially if I compare that, like a lot of the points you brought up uh, in that section is when you compare to all the things you have to do on an iOS app or even an iPad OS app these days fall like the list is getting bigger and bigger but yeah. if you start to compare it with what you have to do on the Mac it's it is bigger and it seems to me that the union of what you need to do on iPad OS versus what you need to do on Mac OS like their circle are slowly but surely merging together. If you imagine a Venn diagram where you have a major area of both circles in the intersection and uh, the minimal features are now like lying in the wings of those two circles. The Mac and the iPadOS are still staying different, but slowly but surely uh, moving into a similar direction, especially API-wise. So I'm really eager uh, to see where it is going from now, and especially having a friend uh, focus more on the Mac in the next months to come. Yeah, I kind of cut. I I was going to originally have a segment where I was going to reevaluate the whole UI kit on the Mac thing, Um, Mm. but I had to cut it because I just didn't have enough time to put together the notes for it. But at a high level, I think what's less necessary right now is uh, the Mac getting inspired by iOS. And what's more necessary is the iOS getting inspired by the Mac. Because as much as I hate the whole keyboard and mouse on the iPad thing, like that's clearly the uh, direction Apple is headed in. And if you want to give those users more productive applications, you need to give them the richer feature set that we have on the Mac. And like the tabular data thing is like, it's not a joke. You actually have to get that in the OS soon or people are going to freak out (laughs) because it's not reasonable to ask everyone to write custom table you. Uh, So I don't know. It's it's really frustrating that they're not going in that direction. And I guess like I I mentioned what I said about uh, the information density thing, like Apple in general just does not seem interested in it at all anymore, which is kind of frustrating. Um, the one place where I think AppKit and UIKit maybe could see some common ground is I would like to see them built on top of a common core, which is uh, views and colors and all of these low-level building blocks of AppKit and UIKit are implemented in completely different ways. And that's probably the most disorienting thing when you're actually switching between the environments is, oh, the view API is completely different. Oh, the color API is completely different. And it just seems kind of arbitrary. Like I'm sure much like cell and uh, view-based NS table views, there's probably a reason for it. And I'm willing to bet a lot of it is probably historic 
stuff that dates back to like the early 2000s or whatever uh, when they were first building Mac OS X. But from an outsider perspective, for someone who doesn't really know what the decisions were behind that, it seems completely arbitrary that we have this completely different base of building blocks for UI on both platforms when ideally you think they could both be using the same ones. Um, like if you were to modernize AppKit in one way, I think it would be to give AppKit and UIKit a common foundation, maybe just make like a core UI framework that just puts views and colors and all of that stuff in a way that is can be shared across both UI frameworks. But like, again, at that point, if you're just going to re-implement an stable view in UIKit, you're kind of questioning, well, why do we have separate implementations of these frameworks at all? Why isn't it just one framework for everyone? And I think that's sort of the point behind SwiftUI. But SwiftUI is built on a backing layer, so I don't yeah. know what's going on there. It's kind of like doing the abstraction work for you without changing the backing layer, which is what we have right now. So it's kind of halfway there of what you've been describing because while you were talking, I was like, yeah, it's kind of SwiftUI, but can I not SwiftUI? So... And it's kind the, of catalyst too. It's kind of strange. Right. Yeah. Like the following is are going to be interesting because I strongly feel that we haven't seen maybe a quarter of that picture. And I wouldn't be surprised that Apple is also painting while they're moving on that direction. I mean, just They've look done. at shortcuts on, <laughs> on iOS right now for a disaster class on how Swift UI is going. Right. And uh, Monterey is not out yet, but people are saying that's more or less the same too there. So. Yeah. Again, but the premise of SwiftUI and not at it being allowing you to write a cross-platform code base, but having a cross-platform UI framework, it's kind of the the the, the difference is a bit small, but there's one I mm-hmm. think is a bit of what you're uh, asking or what you would like to see is when you ask for a color, you ask it the same way both on iOS and the Mac, even if yeah. internally. It is ren- not rendered differently, but ask into AppKit or UIKit differently. Right. Uh, but kind of like I said on episode 161, like I, I'm not fully on board with the idea that SwiftUI is the way forward either. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the issue that I have with that. It's like, yes, they're giving me what they want in the completely not the way that I want, uh, which is kind of the issue. But that's that's Apple for you. That's why I'm pretty in, I'm pretty happy and interested on the weeks and months to come to have you back on Apple development. Let's call it this way, even if it's on the Mac and possibly in the future uh, on iOS. And I won't ask you timeline or anything. I don't want to put pressure on you. I know you're pretty you're gonna be pretty busy with the video series, but uh, I see a bright future there. It's I, I, I don't want to be meany again, but I kind of miss the moments where we were talking about iOS development at the same time because it was yeah. part of our life together. Uh, so, yeah, you can still do web development, but I miss those days. So I'm happy they're back. Yeah, me too. Good. So I'm sure Yannick will include some links to uh, the Apple documentation. Yeah, hopefully you might have found some hidden gems somewhere. Who knows? Maybe not. But for sure you'll be able to find uh, links to a show note at limitlesspossibility.net slash 170-170. I don't know uh, if it's actually worth it to link to the documentation because Monterey isn't out yet and all the links are going to break. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. But 
Who knows? Maybe it's worth uh, doing it so that it gives you. Remember when you were having links to uh, the old documentation, saying, "Oh, this is an archive link," and blah blah blah. Or even remember the time where you couldn't link the documentation because the link were always changing for the same content. That was another fun uh, moment. But you can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibly.net. You can find the show on Twitter at at limipo underscore podcast. That's l i m i p o underscore podcast you can find us individually on twitter i'm at lukonosh that's l-u-c-c-o-n-o-u-c-h-e and yannick is at sakarina that's s-a-k-u-r-i-n-a and i think it's worth mentioning maybe the name of your youtube channel where the videos will be uploaded yeah it's yannick Maya. you can just find it in the show notes it'll be less trouble right, right okay it, it, it's not a, another channel it's your personal channel so no it's, it's my personal men- channel it's worth mentioning and we will see you in two weeks see you in two weeks